out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, always playing the finest in indie pop. We also love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the Ipswich bass band Bleach, who I spoke to very recently. In fact, the drummer, Steve Scott, and also vocalist Sally Carlson to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. So this is the interview. And after a few minutes of casual chat and getting to know each other, and also learning how to record this particular one because it was a three-way conversation, we started with Sally and, um, yes, was curious to find out her musical influences and what she used to listen to in her teen years. Sally, it's over to you. I, yeah, I kind of got into music quite young, probably when I was about 11, um, and started listening to kind of post-punk stuff, really. And I think the first album I bought was uh, the first Public Image album. And I just really loved that. I really loved the sort of confrontational um, approach. And I was really fascinated by lyric writing and more sort of spoken word approach of of people like uh, John Lydon. Um, Yeah, and I think it kind of spiralled off from there in various directions, Um, mostly post-punk stuff and kind of British New Wave until... I met someone who actually was in the kind of lead scene and knew some of the Chumbawamba people as well, um, who introduced me to a whole load of stuff that came before that, a lot of kind of psychedelic stuff like... Um, oh, gosh, I've gone completely blank. <laughs> um, oh, no, uh, things like Pink Fairies and Zombies and, you know, things going back to the 60s and lots of reggae and stuff as well, and that really broadened my horizons... Um, before the band, I was listening to things like Sonic Youth and The Fall. Um, and then when, when we got together, I think we all came from different places. So that's why there was quite a um, not a kind of a unified approach to where we were going. When we first started writing songs together, we had lots of different ideas that we, we brought together. I think yes. That's, isn't it, Steve, to say where we came from? Steve, what were you listening to in your formative teen years? Well, I, I suppose I'm a bit older so uh early sort of 60s rock really some of that early metal stuff and then into prog very uncool um and then latterly well into the whole 80s indie thing um including some of that sort of post-punk stuff that sally was talking about um but but always fairly eclectic um and um i was quite happy for it not to be melodic which is just as well when it came came to us because that wasn't what we were trying to do either. So, um, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because because without giving too much away, I'm I was born in the mid '60s, so I'm now in my mid '50s, and my, I got an older brother who was 
I sort of, I suppose, idled or sort of worshipped, I suppose, one of those. And he was really into the prog world of the 70s because he was that bit older than me. And so he was into Yes and Genesis. But it was kind of watching Top of the Pops and people like The Sweet and Slade and T-Rex and then David Bowie that I suppose. But it was kind of the 80s thing that I, I suppose, with the especially the Smiths, I have to confess, and people like the June Brides and all that indie stuff, listening to John Peel and buying the NME. I was such a cliche. So, yeah, that was it. So when did the when did you um when did the band when did you sort of meet up and think actually we could do this ourselves you want to explain steve how it happened because i was last in wasn't i <laughs> well I, I don't think david we ever thought we could do it actually it was a sort of a, a hobby that that grew out of control um we um sally and i were active in uh, community campaign in Ipswich called the Venue for Ipswich campaign, uh, which was a campaign to get a venue in Ipswich um, for live music. And um, uh, and I think Neil and Nick Singleton uh, knew us through that vaguely. And I, the legend is, and I have no memory of it, but they approached me while shopping in Tesco or somewhere and, um, and said, let's get a band together. And we were sort of scratching around for a singer. And I, I said, well, I know this girl, Sally, and she's got real balls, but whether she can sing or not, I have no, no clue. And uh, we sort of got together and made noises in the back of the Ipswich Caribbean Association at the bottom of Woodbridge Road. And, uh, and then it, it sort of spiralled from there, really. That's fantastic. Actually, I did an interview with a member of the Photos and they had, um, after his first band fell apart, the second band, they just wanted a, a female singer and went, I have no idea if she can sing, but she can dance well and she looks really feisty. We'll ask her. And she said yes. And that was it. So was it a slightly similar thing with you, Sally? I don't think I could ever dance well. It was <laughs> a human league kind of situation where I was brought in for my kind of appeal. Um, I think they were definitely really um and and yeah so I, I went along to see them they kind of said you know we, we rehearse on whatever it was a, you know Thursday night at, at the, the Caribbean Association um so my friend Paul took me on the back of his motorbike because I if, if I'd walked I wouldn't have made it there I would have come back I would have bottled it so he took me on the back of his motorbike and deposited me there and I went in and sat listening to them um and it was pretty terrible but I thought I just I can't crush them by saying this is terrible. I'll come back. So I did go back and we just kind of plugged away until yes. bearable came out of it. Well, it's quite interesting because because I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which were basically the years of the Smiths. And then various things happened. You know, you had the ecstasy rave world that, you know, unless bands were going to change to that kind of sound like the Happy Mondays and Super Dragons, they weren't going to get much publicity or any interest. And then you had grunge. And then within that, you had that other scene that was that kind of, I suppose there was that North London scene with people like um, Silverfish and My Bloody Valentine and the Faith Healers. Did you, and, and there would have been Carter, the Unstoppable, they weren't really that scene, but they were from that area. So did you, did you sort of, because kind of musical scenes are kind of quite a major thing for bands to make it. And if, if you're in it, that's brilliant. You're going to get some publicity and, and sales. If you're not, then you're Norman Nobates. Did you feel a bit connected to that world that had slightly developed in, I suppose, that North London scene? Um, well, our first gig was with Silverfish. So we, we kind of 
you know, felt an affinity, I think, to what they were doing musically. Uh, and we did do a couple of other gigs with them. And I think we played with the Faith Healers at some point and we played with Carter. Um, and uh, we did gigs with some of the other bands from that kind of scene that that developed. So there were, um, oh, who were they? Swerve Driver, you know, even though they were from Oxford, I think, they they were sort of involved in that, that same group. Yes, and there was Lush as well, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and we obviously we, we toured with Ride, who would who had toured with with Lush, and so it kind of had a little epicenter, and then it, it sort of spun out, and there was that Thames Valley kind of shoegazy thing. But we were in Ipswich, which was um, the home of of kind of hardcore um, thrash punk. You know, we had Extreme Noise Terror in Ipswich and, and that was very much what the scene was I think do you think that's fair to say Steve we weren't really part of that were we <laughs> so we were a bit on a limb yeah I'm I'm always a bit nervous about sort of scene things I I think what definitely we were a part of and we really benefited from was that that North London gig scene rather than the bands but the the Falcon and the Bull and Gate um and then the sort of um what was the um Kilburn Road um, the Forum, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Country Club, uh, those kind of those kind of really fantastic venues in that bit of London. Yeah, um, I, I think that gave us a hell of a boost, and so we were picked up quite quickly by promoters and managers and and record people who were kind of touting around that physical scene rather than necessarily putting us into a you know a particular genre which people always try and do anyway don't they oh god i'm i'm terrible for that now now the band's name sally Mm. tell us tell us how the band's name because i got a memory that it was named after the first nirvana album but is that true or have i just made that up well again we were kind of kicking a few very poor ideas around um (laughs) struggling i think to find you know something that that we all didn't find really repellent um and and we got to the point because i think we we were going to actually play live and we still hadn't really fixed on what we were called so we we had to jump with something um so it was a bit of a suggestion because that that first nirvana album had just come out and um i was listening to it a lot i know um we, we went, I think some of us went to see, I don't know whether any of the rest of the band did, but I know I went to see Nirvana at Norwich Arts Centre. Yes, bizarrely, I was there. I did an interview. That's one of my claim to fame with, with, with the band. Yeah, yeah well, I knew their, knew their booking agent. Um, oh, because they were supporting Tad, weren't they? Yeah. Oh. That, yeah, so, it, and, and it just seemed like, well, it's a name that, it'll stick it's short we didn't want to be the something you know so it's like it's short it's one word it, it meets some criteria that we'd kind of set out and people are going to remember it for good or bad reasons so it and then once once you've picked a name the name becomes what the thing that it names is you know and it, it stops being a, a word that has other connotations and it becomes your name so then we worried about it less after that I think yes and then, so did you, because with a lot of bands, especially I suppose in the 80s, in the early 80s, a lot of people, were, you know, there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of people just went, oh, I'm just going to be unemployed for two years, claimed job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance, you know, we were on the dole, got into bands, you know, released a single, John Peel play it, then he got the, you know, John Peel session. So things were going well. And then the first album, how did it sort of develop with 
the band, you know, bands kind of more in the sort of late 80s and early 90s sort of getting a sound together, you know, getting, you know, like the unit and then sort of getting a record deal. Mm. Well, we had jobs, didn't we, Steve? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. And, and you know, that, as I said earlier, it was a, a hobby that kind of grew out of control, really. But it was broadly, as you say, David, so we we put together um, a four track demo tape. Um, and I think we got signed, didn't we, Sally, after about seven gigs? Yeah. And we only had about half a dozen tunes to our name. Um, and we got a, quite an early John Peel session as well. So, I mean, that all happened within about six months of scratching around in the back of the Ipswich Caribbean Association. It was ridiculous. We we had our first tour, and and if we had... 10 songs to our name I'd be very surprised it was just crazy yes but obviously the momentum must have just picked up because that was on way cool records home of um the senseless things so did you feel kind of you know in that very short period of time you did a eclipse snag and shotgun so you must have got your sound you know a sound that sort of you thought actually we've got something a bit better than just like listen to a normal sort of pub band who are just going to play in front of their friends, family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see them. Yeah, I think um, I think we had ambition. We might not have had kind of talent and ability, but we did have ambition. And I think a lot of a lot of what makes a band um, stick, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily about musical ability. It is about just having something else that hooks people in and I, I, I think th- there was there was just something that we did that was um compelling and it probably it was a bit of the sort of flying by the seat of our pants um atmosphere when we played you know that people never really knew if we were going to get to the end of our set or not or if it was going to fall apart or I was going to walk off crying or something you know it, it all felt very um just edgy and I think people started coming to see us because it was just there was lots of energy um and it all felt a bit uh yeah unpredictable yes and did you sort of because obviously there was i say obviously but it might not be but you know there was the kind of the, that whole explosion of the grunge world that had sort of happened a bit with sonic youth and the buttholes and then you had the rise of uh, the seattle scene so did you did you think this is it actually let's go towards that scene. let's go towards that sound a bit more mm-hmm. during that period because frankly Everyone loves it. No. No. no I, I, I seem to remember spending lots of time trying not to sound like other people. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we ever actually sat down and had a conversation about what we wanted to sound like. But we would sometimes play things and go, I really don't like this. Or I kind of like this, but we don't want to sound like this you know it's really hard to explain isn't it Steve that we we kind of knew what we didn't want to be but then it was about kind of grasping around and and seeing what excited us and assuming it would excite other people as well that the way that we wrote was really painfully slow David so we we would jam until we had some sort of sound that that we liked and we'd record that onto a cassette tape and we try and remember that for the next week, and then we try and build on that. So none of us wrote music. None of us 
took a lead in writing things that, you know, all four of us kind of put in our own bit. So it took ages and ages. So other than that kind of, oh, no, that sounds a bit too much like let's drop that. It wasn't a conscious pro process. It was a very, very organic but painfully slow process. And, and what you got was an accident rather than a design. Yes. And but did you I mean, because often when people start and it could be in anything, often thinking, I'm not sure I'm feeling a bit like a phony. But did you as you started sort of developing and playing more gigs and recording more, did you start to find your own sort of, yeah, your own voice or your own playing or the sound of a band that you think, actually, we're I'm feeling a bit more confident. Did that start to come together? Yeah, I think I, I remember us doing um, a gig at the Bull and Gate and I think we'd opened there for, oh, I can't remember, possibly the Charlotte's, and then they got us back about two weeks later to headline um, because a, a lot of people had turned up to see us early and, and they thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll put them on again. So we were back, um, yeah, just within a matter of weeks to headline. It was a really hot night and they had the, the doors open at the, mm. the front of the venue out onto... Um, Kentishtown, you know, road, the, the main road there. And um, and I remember us just being on stage and just looking out across this kind of sea of heads and, and, and it just clicking and thinking, oh, my God, we're actually playing quite well just at this moment in time. You know, if we could bottle what we're doing right now, then it would all life would all be a lot easier. Um, and it, so it was like little incremental kind of gains in confidence, I think, of, over time of just going out and playing, you know, it was... Um, I always found recording really difficult because I never really felt that, that I was happy with anything that, that I did. And I, um, I just found it really frustrating. But but playing live, when it clicked, it was um, it was just a really amazing experience. And then you just go back and just want to kind of get that again because it becomes a bit addictive, I suppose. Yes. And were you sort of looking at it as a sort of a potential of something that you think, oh, I could be doing this for the rest of my life or were you just looking at it still as a sort of a bit of a interesting hobby or a phase mm. Mm. well we we had to make a decision at one point do we quit our jobs and do this full on which we did what in sort of early 1990 sally something like that was yeah it was it, it was reasonably early on wasn't it we had to Put the put the time in because we have to. We, we thought we either have to write and release an album, or we just stick at, at this. So yeah, it was going to take some time commitment because of the way that we worked. So yeah, we quit jobs. Uh, yeah, and we were being offered um, sort of quite big uh, tours of the states and UK and Ireland and so on. So we just had to to kind of you know stick or twist at that point, and. Um, and so at that stage, it, it became very real. And, you know, we were employing agents and managers and booking agents and T-shirt manufacturers and record labels and solicitors and, you know, the whole the whole thing. So it became a proper job for three years, completely full on and completely absorbing everything that we did, did really. Yes. And what's your memory of the, the album Killing Time? Because that was... That was... Because the first album was kind of your singles, wasn't it? That came came out, I think. And then Killing Time was the first proper album. Yeah, we'd, we'd done two EPs um, and then we we did the album, yeah, did Killing Time. Yeah, and we, we um, I remember packing the equipment up out of our little rehearsal shed on a farm 
to go into the studio and it was the day Freddie Mercury had died. That's always the thing I remember first when I think about making that album. Yes, God, I remember that day. Yeah, strange, we thought, isn't it? Yeah, we thought the spirit of Freddie might, you know, come along yes. in the studio with us. And had you record had you written everything first? Was it all there and you just needed to get in the studio? I think more or less, wasn't it, Steve? Although we did one we did improvise one thing while we were in there, which worked quite well. Yes. And did you and the other thing that a lot of bands have issues or problems with is kind of working with a producer. Did you manage to navigate that little tricky moment? Okay. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean it's interesting. When when we did our very first EP, we worked with uh, the engineer and producer that the telescopes had used in Burton. And and I think we found that a bit frustrating. We wanted more control. So we uh, when we did the subsequent stuff, we sort of self-produced it, but then working with um, Nigel Palmer, he put so much input into it, we gave him producer credit as as well, which I think was was fair enough. We never really worked with a proper producer, Svengali figure, and, and, and maybe we would have benefited from that, but we were so stubborn about what we wanted, it, it would have been a, a bit bruising to be honest yes so it was a bit of a tricky session no well no not really I, the the interesting thing about killing time was that um we started recording it we'd so the story was that we'd done i think our second tour of the states i forget and on the way back we said to our our then manager um that we wanted to move on to a different manager or a different record label. I forget which way round, Sal. Um, yeah. And and he took umbrage anyway and, and basically stole all our kit because it was in transit from the States. And so for about six months, we didn't have any... I think we had one guitar. I had my drum kit, but we had no back line. And we were scratching around and we were in arguments with this chap and it sort of took the the wind out of our sails a bit. We weren't touring. We were sort of trying to rec- um, make up new records. But by the time we got into the studio to record Killing Time, some of the wind was sort of taken out of our, our sails a bit. And so I think there's some great tracks on it. But it, as a whole, it, it's got a, it always disappoints me. I think the stuff that came before and afterwards is much better. But... Killing Time is the one that sold the most, so it's always a bit frustrating. Yes. And how did you find touring America? Because that's often finishes quite a lot of bands off, but you obviously sounded like you were quite energised by it. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. And and we kind of, um, we did it on a bit of a shoestring, but I think the experience was all the better for it. So we we drove everywhere. So we drove... um, up the East Coast, across the, the whole of the country, kind of diagonally, you know, um, northeast to southwest and then up, up the West Coast. A few little flights here and there and then flew back across. Um, but we, we saw so much more. We were touring with Kitchens of Distinction and Kingmaker. So it was a three British band bill, which was quite nice because we sort of built relationships with them. But they were doing a lot more flights and staying in hotels and we were driving everywhere and and staying in in cheap motels and things and it, it was just 
know, a much more interesting experience. I think we saw a lot more and I think we kind of had a good time, didn't we, Steve, generally? I, I thought it was brilliant. I, we got into that rhythm of being on the road of we had a great tour manager and, and we'd sort of do the gig, do maybe a couple of hundred miles, collapse into a motel, wake up late, travel another couple of hundred miles, set up, play, repeat. And and in between time, we, you know, we just lived life on the road. It, it was absolutely fantastic. Oh, that's fantastic. Because mostly that's the thing that most people struggle with. But obviously you you got the formula on that one and actually enjoyed it rather than want to, um, yes, think that's it. I'm, I'm going home and never thinking about this experience again. So that's that's incredible. That's, yeah. So the band must have been, you must have felt incredibly excited to be both A, in America from after two years of just being in a band to sort of doing the first album. Yeah, it did. It did feel unreal. You know, when we got there, um, we we were in a hotel in um, in Manhattan near Central Park, and I, I remember us kind of checking in there and going, "Oh, this is quite nice." And and I just I looked out the window and thought, "I just want to cherish every second that we're out here. This is just such an amazing experience." And every day that passed by, I thought, "Oh no, it's a day less. We're going to be here. You know, it's another day gone, and I just want this to last forever." It, it you know it was great, and I think we you know we were getting on really well. We we, we had a laugh, you know, and and as Steve says, we we um we had a brilliant tour manager, a guy called Doug from um, from California, who was just such a laugh and he could see if, if we were starting to flag a bit and get a bit exhausted by it all you know he would he would do something stupid to raise our spirits and and get us back on track again yes we, the british it was the british invasion wasn't it yeah yeah it was a bit like that so then you you sort of have two more releases you know like in in succession hard and then fast did that um, and that was on music disc as well so you had by then you had a new did you have a new manager yeah sort of yeah <laughs> yeah we did yes um yeah so we parted company with our manager who also ran way cool um and we moved on to a new management team and, yeah, did the, the album and then did those two um, mini albums, which we were quite proud of, I think, you know, the sort of process of making those records. It was a bit more thought through, um, but but it was a bit harder, I think, for, for us to, you know, maintain the momentum because the shift of the press had moved and the focus had kind of moved Um and there was more going on in America for for us than there was in the UK, really, at that point. Yes, because because bizarrely, in the next year or two, Britpop happens. <laughs> did you did you ever feel oh crap? We should still be we should still be a band. We should be writing that sort of easy to play record. No, I don't, I don't think we had it in us to. I, I, you know, I don't. Um, I don't regret the time that we spent, nor do I regret us splitting up because I think that was the right time to do it. Um, and and we we were never going to play write and play pop songs, were we, Sally? No, no. It it was it was too pop, wasn't it? And they were on top of the pops and things, and 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 we were we weren't like that, you know. I mean, we did get phone calls from major labels early on. And, and we we just sort of laughed about it and, and didn't think that was um, part of our dream, you know, part of our um, plan. 
we wanted to do something that was, um, yeah, was independent, truly independent. Yes. Not too influenced by other people. And so when so when you came to record first, did you did you feel like this was going to be the last recording of the band, or did, or did I mean sometimes people have that feeling that you know it's we're, we're kind of struggling to keep the momentum going and 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 it, we've kind of committed so we'll do it, but we'll probably it will probably be the last one. It was a bit knife edge, wasn't it, Sally? If you remember, I, I'd um, I'd moved out to Canada to live with a girl, um, and um, I got this ultimatum to come back and record the album, otherwise they, they were going to pick a different drummer. I seem to remember something around that, um, and we did have a tour set up, didn't we, uh, to promote it? And we recorded some more. I think that the record, the American le- record label, was getting a bit. Uh, itchy and they asked for some more uh, songs and we recorded them they said nah at the same sort of time that we were going through the point of you know kind of falling out with each other a bit as well we just I think we'd run out run out of steam to be honest and we'd run out of money a bit as well Um, and it kind of it just felt the right sort of time but I don't think we actually knew this is it when we were recording fast do you? No, I don't think so. I'm trying to, was that, we did that in um, Bath? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, what was the last song you recorded as a band? Oh, God. It was probably a demo for um, for the for the American company, wasn't it, that we, we would have done in Ipswich. So it would have been one yeah. of the batch that were actually quite good songs. And when we... we um, we did a couple of gigs a few years ago and we played some of those songs and we hadn't ever played them live, had we? Or, or maybe only once. And we thought, oh, actually, they were quite good. <laughs> what a waste. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and how did... Go on. I was going to say, and did you have a moment where you all sat down and said, shall we call it a day? Or did you just not turn up to a rehearsal? This is a long time ago, David. I mean, you're, you're talking best part of 30 years. Bear that in mind. <laughs> um, there was a conscious point. I, I was refiling some stuff because now we're all in lockdown. We've got a chance to sort of do things that we we haven't done for years, haven't we? And so I was filing some things the other day, and um, we sort of sent out a letter to um, our fan base um, saying, you know, this is it. We're, we're off. Um, it's been great. Thanks very much. So, um there was a, a we must have sat down at some point and said right that's it we'll we'll knock it on the head but i don't remember that meeting do no. you no no i don't yes well i just i i i remember quite a few people that moment where they realized the band is over and then sort of spending six months thinking i don't know what we're doing or what i'm going to do next did you did you have a sort of a, a huge you know hole to sort of like feel after that finished. Um, I think we we all sort of did other bits and pieces, didn't we, to occupy ourselves. I mean, Neil and I, um, the guitarist and I, did start something else for a little while, which didn't really come to anything. Um, thinking, oh yeah, you know, we'll we'll kind of get another band together, but it yeah it didn't didn't really work. And you played. Um, with a few people, didn't you, Steve? You kind of did a bit, a few bits and pieces, kind of for more fun. 
less pressure. Yeah, um, but I quite quickly, because I'm a forester by training and nature, and that's what I did before the band, and I went back, got a job back and went and did that. So I sort of moved quite quickly back into into work. I remember being taken around my first day back in forestry and this little Scotsman took me around this ancient woodland and we had a nice little tour around. And he said at the end, uh, Steve, what do you think I should do here? And I thought, I haven't got a fucking clue. <laughs> 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 I've been playing in a band for three years, mate. Um, so, but I, you know, I quite quickly did that. I did, I played a tour with Big Ray um, and they did a tour with the, and we supported uh, the Lemonheads and, and that was great fun. But then they wanted to do a big tour of uh, Europe and I just, I didn't want to quit my job again. So I kind of knocked it on the head after that and uh, and haven't really played seriously since apart from our, our little reunion in 2015. Yes. And what happened, you know, being the sort of, the front, the front person of the band. How did that feel with you, Sally? Because obviously, you know, you have a lot of attention and have, having to sort of go through that process of being the, the person who everyone's kind of looking at. I just wonder what that was like when, when the sort of band was over and you went, mm, right, next chapter. <laughs> Where are my adoring fans when I step out of the door? <laughs> you know, I, I'm never, never sat very comfortably with me, really. So I was quite pleased to slide back into um, anonymity. Uh, I moved to uh, from Ipswich to London quite quickly, um, within a year of the, the band um, kind of coming to a close, I think. And um, I started working for a record company. And I, and I just really enjoyed not being in that position anymore and, and helping other people kind of, you know, work towards their dreams, I think. Um, uh, yeah, no, so I worked in the music business for five years I was down there doing that um so I sort of just did something different but then but people knew who I was and you know would talk to me about that so I still sort of had my identity of having been that person in that band but there was no expectation that I was ever going to have to <laughs> get on stage and sing again which I was quite yes. well it's a kind of interesting sort of various you know people who had been in bands like um I suppose I remember the field mice you know one day somebody walked into the office where the lead singer Anne had was working with a t-shirt on you know the field mice and obviously she had no idea that she was there with the lead singer of the band or one of them anyway and went actually I used to be in that band and it was like no you, you know and it's like yes that was my other life once and it was like so it's kind of it must be occasionally strange when sort of um people go oh yes I saw you many decades ago yeah, I still very occasionally come across someone that remembers me. So um, now, I, you know, I live up in York and I work with volunteers. And, yeah, there was uh, there was a guy that I came across. I could I've met him a few times and he always kind of looked at me a bit funny. And they eventually said, I remember who you are. I came to see you play at the, um, was it, oh, God, what was that club called in, in Washington, Steve, that we played? 5.30 club or something, I can't remember. Um there was a little venue in Washington. We'd done a gig there, and he'd been there and seen us like years and years ago. So that was quite funny. So yeah, it happens now and again. Yeah, so is I've, it... had, I've had one or two of those small world ones. That that place in in Washington was had a lot of rats in the backyard. I seem to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One ran over my foot when we were unloading the van. I almost got back in the van. Yeah. <laughs> 
And and one thing that I've noticed is that kind of 30 years seems to be an interesting past in a time where suddenly people start to think, oh, I, perhaps I need to archive stuff. Have you ever sort of thought the same thing with the band of thinking, actually, it'd be quite nice to put all the stuff in an easy to access kind of CD package or anything like that? Oh, well. <laughs> well, Cherry Red uh, did sort of, uh, ask us about that when we did the reunion about five years ago and it didn't come to anything um i i didn't put all the sort of archive stuff onto our facebook page and that was quite cathartic so all the press cuttings the the photographs quite a lot of the kind of video stuff went up there so that's all there and that's there in perpetuity which is quite nice um yeah, it'd be nice to have a sort of gatefold box set of, uh, of, of CDs or something, wouldn't it, Sally? It would. Yes. I'd like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, you need a kind of... Because I do know... I have no... Because I'm just... You know, I've never played in a band. I've just been a fan. But, you know, they, they, it's interesting that there's a lot of kind of documentaries have come out recently in the last few years. There was one on the, the chills, the go-betweens, the wedding presents, George Best one, and... Um, L seven the slits you know it's kind of and the dolly mixture and so so suddenly they're, they're sort of the they're sort of interested in making either a little film documentary or like you said cherry red records are the ones who are fantastic at putting these compilations together so and I can see that for the fan it's really nice and for the artists as well it's like oh actually that's it's nice it's, it's almost like a way of being able to revisit and be able to sort of put something out there and say ah oh, archived it's done. Yeah, and I think um, it sometimes is interesting to let people hear stuff that they may have missed and kind of for younger people to come across things. So um, when when we did those couple of gigs, let's say five years ago, an old friend of mine um, got in touch with me and said, my son's come across your, your stuff recently and, you know, through the Facebook page and things. And we got, um, we played on Six Music, Steve and Mac played, played an old track. And, and he said, my, you know, my son's like 18, 19 and really loves all your stuff. And he's going back, you know, buying your stuff on eBay and, and playing it, which I thought was very commendable of him and obviously not arm twisting on behalf of my friend but um you think well you know there might be people who might be interested in what we did you never know you never know so look lastly what would you say to a an 18 year old self you know if you could have just whispered one thing in you know after that experience and years of sort of being alive um you know what you'd sort of say to somebody starting out oh steve you go first well, it, it, I think it would be around don't trust, don't trust what you're being told because I came from a world where, you know, if somebody said something that was true and they were serious about it and they meant it and they would follow up on it. Music industry is is full of shits who who say one thing and, and mean another, and will not follow up on it, and so. I mean, I think we had our tongue in the cheek, tongue in cheek most of the time, and I think we should have just been more um, savvy. I think we were pretty savvy, but even more savvy than than we were, because it it was a real cutthroat, sharky, shark infested waters, and uh, there there were quite a lot of really quite uh, nasty people out there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I would I would agree with that. And I think 
I think I would have told myself to um to just to enjoy it more to kind of go go with the stuff that was good more and and not stress about um about yeah the, the the whole ride and how unusual it was you know because it's not real life it, it's you have to you have to just um say okay i'm getting on i'm getting on the train and i'm gonna go where it takes me um and not keep kind of looking out the window and stressing too much about where you're going it's just you just have to kind of go with it and enjoy it yes um, well it, it must be quite strange because it's something that i guess people want if they form band but probably you know in 90 percent of the cases it doesn't really go that far but then when it does sort of click and you think oh my god it, 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 like you said the, the train has suddenly started to go or the or the rocket and you're sort of thinking oh god we haven't got time to think you know everybody's at at us in each direction so i can imagine it must be quite confusing yes <laughs> especially if you're easily confused <laughs> which i think we were at points <laughs> yeah I mean, when it was good, it was brilliant. And, you know, mostly live, it was such a buzz. And we, we saw, you know, we met lots of great people. We saw a lot of great things. And, you know, as part of my DNA, I don't regret it for a minute because it was fantastic and it, it sort of partly defines who I am. Um, but, you know, yeah, I would have been much more relaxed about things if, if I'd known it was only going to last for three years anyway. <laughs> yes it's a tricky one so what was your fondest moment live what was the kind of the gig that you thought god this is this is it you know when you look back at it um i think i think for me it was that gig at the, the bull and gate where i thought actually all, all of these people you know there's a room just a sea of heads in front of us um and and going right back down the corridor right out to the road um all of these people have, have come to see us and this is kind of like a, a a moment where something is happening and we might actually have something here. That was a really special moment. Yes. Steve? Um, there's, there's a couple of the early ones that, that I mean, there's, you know, playing in the States was a fantastic experience, but the, the two British gigs that stand out, one was at the Camden Palais where, the place was full. I mean, it was there was about I think about three thousand people all come to see us, which was incredible. Um, and the other one was the first gig we played with Ride at the Town and Country Club in uh, yeah. Kilburn. And um, they um, <laughs> we arrived in in my estate car, and all the roadies came out and said, "Where's all your gear?" And we said, "Well, it's here." And then the boys from Ride were helping us carry all the stuff in, um, and we went out on stage to uh, a full house and i think we between us we sold more t-shirts that night than any other bands had ever done in the history of the venue sort of thing i mean that that was a fantastic buzz just going out straight before them and they were on you know the, the absolute crest of a wave and that was fantastic as well yes I remember that gig. I remember when we went on stage, I had a little disposable camera because everyone was saying, you've got to get a photo of, you know, all of the crowd. You've got to get a photo of this huge crowd. And we went out on stage and I kind of stood really nervous with this little disposable camera and went, smile. And and everyone just went, the crowd went completely mad. And I've got this photo of just all of these arms in the air. Um, it was just, a, yeah, that was a bit of a crazy moment, wasn't it? <laughs> Excellent. I guess it was a bit of a golden time for touring and gigs, actually, because I know it's easy to reminisce, but there was always, you know, there were a lot of venues and a lot of club nights. And, you know, we'd, and I, I sort of, yes, so, so 
I've not well, I might have said this already, but you know, you did have those gatekeepers, you know, like John Peel or the NME Melody Maker. So a play or a mention, you know, you got a big audience. Well, a big, I say, but you got an audience, you know. So if you went to the Norwich Arts Centre, you would probably get two, three hundred people, you know, on those wild nights. And 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 every place, like you know, from Bristol to Leeds to Glasgow, had had a kind of a club indie night, didn't they? An alternative night. So it was quite good, I suppose, for the for the bands being able to sort of get in a transit van and go somewhere to the Duchess in Leeds or sort of, you know, Brighton and, and see, you know, just be able to play live in front of an audience that didn't know them intimately. Yeah, and, and every town had its, as you say, it had its indie club night. So you could tour and play pretty much every night, you know, for, for weeks on end. You wouldn't just be stuck with, oh, well, you know, maybe a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night is a, a night where people might come out to a gig. You know that you could go to Norwich on a Monday and you could go to, I know, Kidderminster on a Tuesday or, you know, and there'd be a guaranteed crowd who just wanted to come out and see some new music and it would be really enthusiastic and really sort of, forgiving and interested yes uh, and absolutely. I think lost really with that um you know with so many small venues closing down which is really really sad well oh, yeah I mean yeah yes as an example that wild club I think was three bands for 350 or something yeah. like that so you know you couldn't you couldn't feel ripped off could you really <laughs> anyway look thank you ever so much god I can't believe we managed to get this a three-way conversation I know it's um it's, modern technology it's working it's, it's the future, it's, you know. Like I said, sometimes I get a bit tense when it's like, oh, my God, it's not connecting. But it did. Thank you ever so much, um, Sally and Steve. And, uh, yeah, much appreciated. And when, when I um, do this, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of do a link, you know, for the... And, and then, you know, I'll give it to you and then you can put it on your... If you've got that Facebook page so anybody could listen to it. So, um, but that's really fantastic. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, look, thank you. And have a lovely day. And tomorrow, put sun cream on because it's going to be hot. <laughs> we will. We will. Pandemic <laughs> okay. sunbathing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. An interesting year. Like, look, stay safe. You, you too. Okay, take care. Thank you ever so much. Bye. Yeah, bye. Yeah, bye. Bye. I have to bye. learn how to turn it off now. Yay.